In the pursuit to define Americana music, it has proven more difficult to put into words exactly what it is. And that is in large part due to two factors. One is that it is a relatively new term in application of music. It's been no more than 30 years since the first official Americana chart was released in 1997, making it an infant when compared to other genres of music. The second is the fact that it is incredibly broad and tends to encapsulate many subgenres. So the pressure to identify as an Americana artist is pretty immense. How does an artist apply a new definition to their music when their more familiar influences are already established? How do you apply a term when your contemporaries within the genre may sound completely different from what you play? If huge genres of music like country, pop, and R&B, which were pretty straightforward at the beginning, can change as drastically as they have in the last few decades, how can an artist identify with certainty as an Americana musician as it too continues to grow and change over time? It's a tricky situation, but not for some. Our guest today took the plunge of identification nearly right out of the gate. Reckless Kelly has identified themselves as Americana since they were first able to use the term. Pioneered by brothers Willie and Cody Braun, and later joined by drummer Jay Naz and guitarist David Abetcha and bassist Joe Miller, the band takes its name from the infamous Australia highwayman Ned Kelly. Reckless Kelly has followed in the tradition of their namesake in kicking ass and taking names since they first moved from Idaho to Austin, Texas, and with the production of their first record, Milliken, in 1998. Having made nine records and another in the works, Reckless Kelly draws predominantly from Americana pioneers such as Sunfolt and influences from other musicians like Joe Ely and Billy Joe Shaver. Grammy-winning Reckless Kelly unapologetically combines the hard-driving rhythm of rock and roll with the sincerity and earnest of colorful songwriting. Their longevity and hard work has earned them a very devout and loyal following, and their openness about identification with the category Americana has helped strengthen the term and assisted in making it an identifiable genre. Today at Americana Podcast, The 51st State, our host, Robert Earl Keane, speaks with some of the members of Reckless Kelly about their extensive discography, the process and importance of continuing to make records in the digital age, as well as some of their personal thoughts about Americana music and why they have championed the term during the course of their career. I am your producer, Clara Rose, and this is Americana Podcast, The 51st State. My first love was a wicked, twisted road I hit the million mile mark at 17 years old I never saw the rainbow, much less a pot of gold yeah, my first love was a wicked twisted road My first love was a castle in the sky Never thought I'd make it till I had the guts to try Then I sat up in my tower while the whole world passed me by Yeah, my first love was a castle in the sky Hello, this is Americana Podcast. I'm your host, Robert O'Keen, coming to you from Floors Country Store. And today I'm speaking with Reckless Kelly. If you guys could just go around and introduce yourselves for our listeners, that would help. This is Cody. I play fiddle and mandolin with the band. I'm Willie, and uh, I'm the singer. I play a little, good, a little bit of guitar and write the songs. I'm Jay, and I play drums. Fantastic. So there we go. Jay Naz on the drums, ladies and gentlemen. We're going to start out with Idaho a little bit here. So Cody and Willie, you started playing music with your dad, Muzzy, and brothers, Gary and Mickey, when you were kids. Um, how, how did that start? How, how did you get going on that deal? Well, Dad had a band. Uh, he always had a band. He grew up in a musical family. Our grandpa was a musician, and then Dad and all of his brothers are musicians. They had a high school rock band, and then they, uh, you know, Dad just always played music. And when we were kids, he had uh, he was playing with our uncle Gary, and the Braun brothers, and um, I started getting up and singing with him. I think when I was about five, and Cody got up and started playing fiddle right around the same time. Uh, we'd just jump up and sing a song or two, and um, you know, on the band when the yeah with when the da- band. yeah with the band, and then uh, 
after a few years, Dad figured out that it'd be a lot cheaper if if he had us just join the band. <laughs> so um, we kind of one by one just started playing. I was playing drums, and Cody was playing fiddle, and uh, Mickey learned how to play the bass, and it just kind of snowballed into this family band over Lots the of years. Musical instruments for Christmas. Oh, really? hey, we need a bass player, Mickey. It's a bass. <laughs> that, was, that was his only expense. <laughs> Uh, so, um, what would you say uh, your best best memory is from the the childhood band with your dad? Man, for me, I, I just the traveling around, and I mean, it it really allowed us to be a really close family, you know, and be together all the time. You know, we grew up up in the mountains, so we were homeschooled um, all the way through high school, and um, you know, just being able to be be together, be out on the road, experiencing stuff together, and you know, got to see the country. We we were played in you know, from coast to coast, and mostly around the Northwest. But just I think you know, getting to spend that time together and learn how to be in a band. You know, I mean, Dad taught us how to set up a PA and how to book gigs, and he had his own record label, and you know, had accounts around the state. You know, where you'd go and put CDs in the little stands. And so it was, I mean, it was great to learn about the business and, um, just kind of, we didn't really know any, any different, but looking back at it, it was, you know, invaluable to us. And Jay, he started out playing, playing music with his dad too. His dad was uh, a musician as well. Yeah. member of the rock or the rockabilly hall of fame. Yeah. yeah it was more, a little more part-time. He was doing it on weekends and that was kind of a cool thing. Cause he always taught me, He's like, no matter what happens in music, he's like, make sure it's maintained as a hobby at the very least. And he said, you know, back in the 50s, I mean, he had his, a song played on the uh, on the radio for a whole summer. And it just didn't pan out that way. But he was able to still play music and then play music with his two kids. And it was, it was a little extra revenue stream that actually helped a lot growing up. One of the funniest things, I remember when we first started the band, when Jay just joined the band... Um, him and I didn't know each other very well, and we were shooting pool right before our second or third gig, and we were talking about being the drummers in our dad's band and all the similarities, and, and we played a bunch of the same songs, and it was just so funny. Like, did your dad ever turn around and glare at you and start stomping his foot really loud? <laughs> I was like, yeah, he did it all the time. It was so funny. My, my dad had the, the old Sure PA with the uh, reverb that was the metal whatever the spring, and the spring so it, you know and i'm 13 years old so if he's telling me i'm rushing it's like i'll show you rushing <laughs> you haven't felt rushing yet and so he'd start stamping his foot and then the pia would go <laughs> you, so you were in the movie conager right Is yeah that right? yeah and that was uh, with sam elliott how did that how did that well dad had written a song uh, that won an award from the Cowboy Hall of Fame in Oklahoma City. And so we went to that award ceremony to get that award, and Sam Elliott was one of the presenters, and we got to meet him at a, a party the night before. And he was a producer on that movie and was looking for cast members and asked me to come out and try out for the part. And so I flew flew out to California and tried out, and I'd never even thought about acting before. And, um, he just thought I was right for the deal, and they, they gave me the part, and... It was uh, it was great. It was a really fun experience uh, to get to see how that that side of the world or that that industry works. And so is, let's talk about just a, a little bit about the regionality of Idaho and the mountain states. Is what 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 influences did you gather from being up there in that world? Uh, there was a pretty cool music scene uh, in Idaho when we were kids. Like there was. Uh, dad's band and uh Penno bennett and the famous motel cowboys my friend kip attaway had the kip attaway band and uh the montana band montana was running around band, at the yeah. time and tar water was another version of the motel cowboys kind of and there was just a bunch of like old school honky-tonk bands and we got to see them play a lot and uh when we started playing with dad we didn't do ended up doing gigs with them and um you know when a, the other influence was dad's record collection you know he had a lot of Texas stuff, you know, he had your records and uh, you know, like Guy Clark and Rodney Crowell and Towns and all that kind of Texas stuff. So that's what made us decide to move to Texas was all that early on influence from Dad. Uh -huh. Yeah. So when you write songs, Willie, do you do you draw from the the mountain experience? To, to I mean, it seems like you know some of your songs definitely have that feel. Yeah, for sure. Like especially with the long Long Night Moon album, that was the first one I wrote when I finally got my place up in Idaho. 
and uh, now it's pretty much one of the only places I write anymore. Like I kind of just save up ideas all year long. Really? Just, you know, yeah, I just jot down, you know, hooks and lines and melodies and stuff. And then uh, I kind of just save them up until I can go up there for a week or two and shut the phone off and kind of just hole up and, and I'll just write for a week at a time. And uh, it's a real good way for me to do it. It's kind of what I've done for the last four or five records. So yeah, I get there's a lot of mountain vibe in it, you know. It's it's inspiring and it's a really it's quiet and there's nobody around and you don't have people knocking on the door or ringing the phone, so you can kind of just get in the mode and, and knock it out. So let's talk about the creation of Reckless Kelly. When you now did you decide to to move to Texas and then decide to become the band or the other way around? It was the other way around. We'd met Jay uh the night our we had a band in in uh, Oregon in Bend, Oregon called the Prairie Mutts, and uh, <laughs> the two uh, the guitar player and the drummer left the band because um, we had a big difference of opinion with our manager who they sided with and they wanted us to do like the real hat axe Nashville thing and we just didn't want anything to do with that so they left the band and took the name with them thank God and uh, that same night we went down to a uh, a jam night like an open mic thing at a bar called Posh's and that's where we met Jay uh, the bartender was a friend of ours and she came up to our bass player at the time Shifty and said there's a guy here from Connecticut that plays drums and he wants to know if he can get up and jam with you guys and we said sure and so the first thing he did was start switching the kit to lefty and I was just like ah oh, Jesus here we go <laughs> but uh and did you start stomping your foot? No, I didn't. <laughs> I didn't have to. It turned out he was a really good drummer, so we, we offered him the, the gig. Uh, we had a gig like in a, a couple of days, so we needed a drummer, so we wanted him to do it, and he came down and did it. And uh, the rest is history, pretty much. He's been in the band ever since but, that I night. But, I mean, it, within, that, within that history, you're talking about uh, m- moving to Texas, is that right? Yeah, we finished up. We had about maybe 15 or 20 gigs out in the, the Northwest that summer. And uh, we played those, and we pretty much had decided about halfway through the summer we were going to move to Austin, and we'd never been here. So uh, it was just kind of a leap of faith, and we just decided we'd move down here and, and check it out. So the three, uh, you went with them, huh? Yeah, I had to uh, make a pit stop in North Carolina and quit college. Oh. Five classes left. <laughs> <laughs> and, the, you know, I always think back to, like, we, I remember sitting down and they were, you know, saying, that, hey, we want you to be a permanent member of the band and we're moving down to Austin. And they said, you know, there's an opportunity for us to play every single night of the week there. And I thought that was so cool. Not like, let's go to Austin and take over. It's like, hey, there's a place here where we can actually, you know, really hone in on our craft and have an opportunity to play every single night of the week. And uh, they didn't tell me for just burgers at the time, but <laughs> <laughs> but it was a, it was a cool thing to come down here and, and approach it like that. Like, okay, hey, we can really become a solid band together and get as much experience as we can. She was striking like a Viking in the night, held herself together in the heat of the fight, took me prisoner, captive till the morning light. When I woke, she was nowhere. So, uh, most people assume that a band is a band based on a true democracy. Um, would you consider that, as opposed to, say, the Dave Matthews Band is obviously, as much as I like Dave, is obviously not a democracy there, you know. So, is that how you set up, like, band-wise and or business-wise? Um, well, business-wise, it's kind of the three of us. We own the the business because we've had a bunch of changes over the years with the the bass player and the guitar player, and uh, so we've always just kept control of the the business end of things. And it's kind of a democracy between the three of us. But musically, um, 
it's you know everybody throws in their ideas and uh influences and we arrange stuff together you know i bring the songs to the table so i kind of have the last say if there's ever a big you know if it comes to a head where we all have a different opinion i kind of hold the gavel on that deal but um it's it's fairly democratic i would say usually unless somebody really really wants something pretty bad (laughs) what about nashville did you ever think about doing that we did we went to nashville a lot back in the day um you know, we, Willie and I went down. I remember one time after we did, our, we recorded our live record, and we went down and kind of knocked on some doors and got some meetings and played our stuff for these guys. And they're just like, "Man, you guys are really good, but you're so far off from what we're doing here. Like, are you willing to change, you know, your sound and, and kind of what you're doing in order to fit into this?" And um, you know, we we just never really were. We we always thought that our stuff would kind of fit into Nashville. Um, you know, I mean, because. In 98, 99, you know, I mean, there was, you know, Whiskey Town and Sunvolt and, you know, there was these bands that were kind of making a splash in the Americana, you know, what would become Americana scene. And uh, we really were thinking that that was the way that country music was going to swing, you know, and instead they went with the hip hop pop thing. And once it went went that direction, we were just like, there's no way we're going to compete with this or be able to play in the same rooms with these these kind of bands so you know we kind of gave up on trying to get a nashville deal pretty early on and uh, we, we made some records up there we did some records with uh, ray kennedy and you know there's nashville is uh aside from the business there's a lot of great musicians and producers and studios and things there i mean some of the best in the world so it's a great place to go learn and and play and 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 do business but as far as like trying to do the nashville thing we just we never ever really fit into that that would bring us about to uh millican when you made millican uh when you made millican that was at this point where you said we've got enough songs we need to do a record or we have no songs we need to do a record it was kind of like we have 11 songs we gotta make a record uh-huh. <laughs> yeah um yeah i don't remember having too many extra songs left over at that point in my life but um we were at a point where we needed a record to continue on like you know every, all the venues we were trying to get gigs at and you know they 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 wanted to hear a record so we it, we, it was time to make a record and you recorded it where at arlen, arlen yeah at yeah. arlen in yeah. austin yeah. and how many records have you recorded at arlen only two because they they turned into a, a recording school and like a more of a, a mixing suite for a long time and they just reopened as an a actual studio again like I want to say three or four years ago. So we made our first one and the last one there, and we're going back in in February to uh, do another one. Oh, great. What, yeah. What's it called? Uh, I think it's going to be called North American Jackpot. Okay. Yeah. Great. So uh, Millican, how, like, did you have a budget, or did you have a record company, or did you We just... had no, no record company. We'd met a guy, a friend of a friend, who wanted to produce us, and we didn't, we didn't know anything. Um and turns out he wasn't really a producer. Just he was a guy that was in. He was a, a writer in Austin and had been around the industry a lot and hung around in certain studio settings. So he kind of knew it, but he wanted to get into producing and helped get us into Arlen and and kind of helped set things up. But at the end of the day, really wasn't a producer, you know, and wasn't able to add a whole lot on the technical end of things. And we had a an engineer working with us it was kind of an intern you know we're trying to do everything on the cheap and we got our mixes back and there was something off with the phasing and it was they just sounded you know awful we knew we had the tracks but when we got the mixes back it was just like there's something not right so at that point we um called our friend chris wall uh who's a good friend of ours from idaho he's from montana was friends of our dad back in the day and he'd been down in texas for about 10 years at that point and uh you know we had been hanging out with him and he offered to put us on his label he had an independent label at that time and um and offered to help pay for the additional costs which was almost double at this point which we had to go back and remix the whole record and so it was kind of a you know typical learning experience for the band going in, into the studio for the first time, and uh, you know we made every mistake you could make, and but Chris helped us get that record out and and help promote it, and it ended up being you know it hit when, at that point we were playing we were playing in Austin seven nights a week, and uh, so I had just kind of gotten a start started to get a really good following there, and then that record came out and kind of pushed us over the top. 
So what? Let, let's say if you could just cut it down to one one of the mistakes that you made. What what uh, that you would never do again? Is it? I think the biggest one we made was hiring the guy who said he was a producer, you know, <laughs> and uh, he gave us a couple records that, that he had, you know, his name was on there as a producer. And after we were about like halfway through recording this thing, we started calling around to these guys that had made the records and they're like, that guy's not a producer. And so we, we kind of had to sort of fire him halfway through the deal. And and uh, Merle Brigante is a, a producer here in town who was playing drums with Chris at the time. He came in and he's the one that helped mix it and kind of salvaged the record because it ended up being a good album. But you know that was that was a real learning experience. Just don't take anybody's word for it. You know, make sure you do a little bit of research. Well, we did. I don't like. I remember our lawyer Wafferdinius, who is still with us today. Um, you know, we somebody had recommended. I think Davis McClarty had recommended Wofford, and we called him up to have our first meeting with him. And we plopped down a record contract. Like, what do you think? He had him look through it, and he's like, "Well, uh, uh, this doesn't look great, but I guess if you do this and this and this, and we signed the record contract that night on the pool table at the Continental Club. You know, it was just like, <laughs> <laughs> like, all right, we're in. But yeah, we it was just one of those like, we felt like we had to get this done. We had to get a record out. Had to rush into these things. I think that was our biggest mistake. Was just kind of jumping in too soon without researching stuff and really finding out what was going on. And we didn't have the luxury of taking nights off. Right. Like most bands. I mean, it's a, like when you're when you're at that part of your career and you're recording and stuff like that, you got to keep it going. So we were playing every single night and then getting up and going to the studio in the morning. And, and uh, you know, that we were more able to do that then than we are now. But that was something that kind of added to the the pressure of it all of just kind of shaking off the night before and getting in there and then trying to do your best stuff to record your first album and I said girl now don't you go stop talking crazy Cause I love you more than I ever have before but if I don't show it lately just cause I'm a little bit crazy So uh, your writing process has changed since Milliken, been pretty much the same? What, what yeah, it's kind of evolved. Like I was telling you earlier about the, you know, saving up my ideas and stuff. I don't think I used to do that. I used to write songs. Like if I got an idea, I'd try to find a spot and sit down and write it, which uh, I think it worked pretty well for a while. But these days I hardly ever finish a song in one setting for some reason. Um, unless it's getting like closer to the the finish line, like we've got a record coming up, so right now I'm like, if I have an idea, I will actually finish a tune because I know I'm not going to sit on it for you know another year. But um, I also don't feel like I have to finish every song if it's you know going nowhere. I don't I don't force it. And uh, yeah, so it's it's changed a little bit for the last four or five records. I've been doing it like that, and um, you know, I think back in the old days, I used to be able to write wherever. You know, if we were on the road, I'd you know find a hotel room or you know. I used to go uh, go camping, you know, a couple times. I went out to California or went to Alaska and just hung out for a few days. And it's kind of a similar version of what I do now, but instead of now, I've got a place that I pretty much go to every time. Just personally, is there a song that you uh, in the world of songwriting? Is there a song that you'd wish you'd written? Um, oh, there's a ton of them. You yeah. know, like the whole Guitar Town album. You know, yeah, right. I love that one and. Uh-huh. Uh, a lot yeah. of Dylan stuff, a lot of Springsteen stuff, Petty stuff. Is there stuff. a song that you wish you hadn't written? Oh, there's a few of those, too. <laughs> <laughs> um, there's one in particular is called Bass and Butte Blues on The the Day. It's just a, There's a couple songs on that album. I look back and go, God, I wish I'd have written a couple more songs. So they're just like that one, just like, it's just like nails on a chalkboard. It's just not a good song. So in 2003, uh, you made a record, Under the Table and Above the Sun. Seems to be a point where you guys finally settled on a particular sound. And what is it about that record that keeps you coming back to what many people would consider the Reckless Kelly sound? I think that was the first time we uh, we had time and money to make a record, too. Like, um, so we went to Nashville to make two records with Ray, and that was the, the first one we made with him. And... Uh, he was the first guy that told me, like, 
you know, you need more than 12 songs to make a 10 song album. Like, so he was like, why don't you write like 20 or 25? And, uh, and then when we get those, then work on them, you know? And so we go up there and did a lot of pre-production and that kind of thing. And it really got me into like song doctoring my tunes and instead of just writing it and going, all right, there it is, you know? And so I think that had a lot to do with it. The songs actually were a lot better. And Ray was a really good producer and he had all these cool instruments and, showed us a different way to record too like instead of we'll fix it in the mix it was like no let's fix it now like let's try a different mic or a different snare drum or a different guitar or a different amp or you know and then let's get the sounds really good right on the ground floor and then when we mix it it'll get even better but like that was eye-opening too so i think that was just kind of the first like time we got to make a real record like the like the real guys made them you so know? You, you, did you uh, did y'all everybody here uh did y'all feel like all of a sudden this was much better say than the day and uh, and you were really yeah. finding something was that your yeah, like Willie said, I mean, it, it was kind of having somebody like Ray be involved in with it, you know, and having a producer that we really were, like admired, and and um, it kind of made it feel for me, it felt a little more real. Like, okay, you know, like we've got we've got it on the tracks right now, you know. But I mean, it was really this kind of like all the focus was on this project, and um, you were completely absorbed in it. Yeah, just one other point is I think at that point we had been playing together for a, a long time. You know, I mean, had had really played a lot of shows together. So the band was really tight and had finally kind of figured out what we all were doing in the band in our places. And so it was easier to communicate and, and also just go in and, and play a lot of stuff live. You know, I remember we tracked a lot of that stuff, you know, and, you know, we'd, we'd do it until we got a good take as a band. And uh, let's see, the song "Nobody's Girl" is on this record. Yeah, that's a a, a big live song for y'all. I mean, yeah, we play that one every night. That's yeah. one of the, the every nighters for us, you know. Yeah, yeah. And, and so was that? Did you play that as a band before you recorded that, or was that was that putting together that one in the studio? I can't remember. I want to say we probably didn't. We hardly ever play stuff live uh-huh. before we record it. Um, we might have done it a couple times or something, but. Um, I think that one probably came together in the studio. And I have a demo I made of it on my little, you know, four track that uh, I listened to a year or so ago. And it's almost the exact same version. It's really similar. The first man that you ever loved left your mama and ever said goodbye to anyone. And you were raised with your head held high. But any fool can see it's just a clever disguise. Nobody's baby, you nobody's darling, you're nobody's girl. You always been a little scared to open your heart and you never did it. So, um, let me ask you I have a couple of questions about Desolation Angel. <laughs> uh, number one, uh, where does this title come from? I've looked. Up and down and backwards on the lyric, and I'm like, I don't see this. I don't. See, I, it's I don't. Uh, it's the title of a Jack Kerouac book. Ah, there. We and go. I stole a bunch of lines from a poem that's in that book about the Midnight Ghost, which is a train that runs up the the West Coast from goes from uh, I forget the towns. I want to say San Francisco down to. Uh, Santa Cruz or uh, Santa something or other, but um, so it just had a really cool meter to it, and there was a bunch of lines in it. And actually, that song was two or three different songs that I was working on that all kind of had a similar thing. And uh, the rubber on the road and the blood inside came from this guy that we were playing in Key West for a week. We had like a residency down there at the Hog's Breath, and we met this guy who was just riding around the country on his motorcycle. I can't even remember his name, but T-Bone. T-Bone, okay. <laughs> We've got that cleared out. We have cleared this up. But he slept on our floor at the band condo for like four or five nights, and he was a cool cat. And uh, one morning we woke up, and he had peeled out, and he had left a note that said, thanks for the hospitality, blah, 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 and that he signed it, keep the rubber on the road and the blood inside, T-Bone. And so <laughs> now I know his name. It's a, it's a much better story. But so I was working on that song, and I was working on the Desolation Angels thing, and I I think I had another one in there somewhere. It's been a while, but I just combined the, the three of them, and then they all kind of made sense together. 
And then where did St. Teresa come from? That's from the, the Kerouac poem. Oh, yeah. St. Teresa, don't you worry, we'll make it on time. Great. So, Great. I'm so, so, so happy. Now uh, I'm going to get sued by the <laughs> Kerouac family. No, no, no. no. <laughs> I shed a couple tears, never did I grieve. I walked away and left the This is Robert Earl Keen. We're at the Americana Podcast, the 51st State. We're talking with the band Reckless Kelly. Let's uh, talk about playing live and your live performances, which is, uh, you know, some something that you're famous for. And uh, there's some talk or some, we ran, we've run into some things about how you were thinking about playing in some quieter rooms or maybe theaters. And Yeah, we just, I mean... I guess the last four years we've been kind of making a bit of a transition from the college rock bars into the more listening rooms and theaters, um, mainly because we're getting older and our fans are getting older with us. So, you know, they've all got kids and they want to come out at eight o'clock at night and have dinner and be home at 11 instead of showing up at 11 for a show. So um, it was a challenge getting uh, the promoters and agents to kind of understand that and give us a chance to go do that because then you know i mean our track record was all kind of rock and roll rooms and and kind of the party bars so that was a bit of a a tough sell but it it worked out really great and uh you know it's been we what we do now is we try and go into a market and we'll play one you know in the springtime we'll play the rock room and then when we come back in the fall we'll do the listening room and um that's been working out really well kind of caters to both of our crowds how does the uh so when you play a listening room, that that affects the song choices as far as the the, the your set goes. Yeah, is, for sure. Is that what what you'll do is change to sort of the quieter things and? Yeah, we'll do like a lot more. Uh, we'll do a few more slower tunes and uh, you know the the ones that have like more stories or lyrics you know that people have to understand or listen to and well I tell a few more stories and you know tell a joke or two and. You know, that kind of thing. We kind of try to build the show from a quiet to, uh, you know, a little louder at the end. And by the end of it, we rock it out pretty good, you know. But um, I think people kind of dig it. You know, some people, you know, they'll come up and be like, oh, man, it's hard to sit down and watch you guys play, you know, because they've just, they're so used to drinking beer and watching the rock show. But uh, a lot of people will come up and say, man, that's, I didn't know you guys were such a good band, you know, like I've never actually listened to you before. <laughs> I was like, "Wow!" <laughs> and how does it affect your your drumming? I mean, the funny thing is, in the early days, I used to hate rooms like that because I wasn't really mature enough, I guess, at the time to play quieter. And 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 then I was like, I remember reading something. It was some drummer that said, "You know what I love about playing quiet is when you really get loud, it really stands out." And I was like, "Oh, I can stand out if I, you know." So, just learning the room, and I actually love it because. Um, it is different, but I like the fact that we're listening more to each other because you can hear every nuance in the room. So we're playing better together. And, and also, like Willie said, by the end of the night, it's pretty close to full volume. It's just that they don't really realize it because it, it was this slow buildup throughout the evening and stuff. So I, I, like I said, I really enjoy it. Um, you just kind of play a little softer and try to be a little more dynamic. Okay. Uh, um, so, uh, Seven Nights in Ireland, when you listen to it on the record, it's, you know, it's like a kind of a cool loping tune that, you know, uh, has a st story, has a beginning, middle and end. And, and, but like live, it's a, it's a rocking sort of train ride, you know I mean? So, yeah. so you do, do you realize that number one? I mean, <laughs> I didn't for a long time. We were, I went back and listened to that album and I was like, Oh man, that is slow. <laughs> like I, it kind of really just took a life of its own on stage. Like, yeah. as you know, songs tend to get faster when you play them live and uh, louder. And I'm the worst, but, uh, that's one of our most popular tunes, you know, live and, uh, and so it just became this kind of anthem thing, you know. I have no idea why that song is popular, you know, because most of the people have never been to Ireland. But I think maybe it's just they 
they want to go over there and, and everybody meet the girl, wants to you know? be Irish. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, it was a real surprise that that one got popular, but yeah, yeah it just kind of took on its own life on stage. You know, it's a whole different version. Uh, so within that conversation, do you do y'all ever listen to the old records and and you know, kind of do a little check? Only check? if we have to. The <laughs> 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 only time, time I ever do, yeah, is like when we're relearning songs, like something we haven't done in ten years, and we got to yeah. remember. You go it. to a party at your uncle's house and he puts the CD on. It's like, no! Oh, that's the worst. Yeah. Oh, I just, oh, I, I just, I just, cr- I just look for oh, the yeah. first exit. Check, please. Yeah. <laughs> uh, are there other songs that have changed between recording and playing live that you feel like, you know, significant change? Man, there's quite a few of them. I think everything's probably gotten faster, you know. Uh, Wicked Twisted Road, we've got a whole different new version of, like instead of just being vocals and guitar and fiddle and uh, Dave playing on it, that was just the three of us for the longest time. And then we started having, uh, we had the reprise at the end of the record, so when we made the the live album about 10 or 12 years ago, we came up with a new version where we did that and then jay and uh, the bass player at the time came out and then we did like the reprise with drums and bass and then did that for a while and now we're doing it full band all the way through it you know kind of builds up and then drops out and then comes back in and so it's there's been about three different versions of that one i've always wondered too like when we record the songs if we recorded them too slow or you know because like you said they always speed up live then i always go back and go god did we just record this way too slow or is you know that's always been one of my i I just always heard it was just stage tempo almost almost everybody does it to some extent you know i mean i I know that i'm like uh, ridiculous but still uh it, I think it happens to everybody. Uh, yeah, you know, I can't just imagine that excitement of playing yeah. in front of people. Right? But in the studio, it's funny because sometimes we're like, maybe one click more, you yeah, know, or let's right. just a little fast, a little slower. <laughs> it's so precise. <laughs> but then, you know, like like Cody was saying, you were saying like the, the stage thing, and the, it just kind of changes over time. But it, it might be that when you're recording. It's like, for a singer anyway, it's like the lyrics seem a little rushed when you don't know them that well or you're trying to spit them out. But then once you sang it 50 or 100 times, you're a little more comfy. And at, the, at that time in the studio, one click or two clicks faster seems like, you know, a lot. A lot. Yeah. 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 <laughs> <laughs> well, we kissed all the girls goodbye and gathered in our gear. And when she walked me to the gate, I swear I saw tears. But then she looked into my eyes I knew she felt my pain And only then I realized We were standing in the rain So save our places at the pub And when the eyes are dry again We'll come back another day For seven nights in Ireland And let's go on and move to the Braun Brothers reunion. Uh, just can we go from the very beginning to what it's become now? Yeah, I mean, my my parents started it um, over thirty five years ago. It started out as a dance contest. My dad just had a concert in Stanley. Stanley's a tiny town in Idaho. I mean, like ninety nine people. So uh, they would do a concert there in the summertime and. You know, have two or three hundred people show up, and and they did that for a couple of years, and then they built a dance hall in Stanley at this hotel, and so my dad ran that for a while, and the first year he ran that, they did a Braun Brother reunion, which was his brother Gary and him, and it was their twentieth um, anniversary, so or not twentieth anniversary it was. A, It'd been yeah, it was the twentieth reunion of their high school rock band. Okay, okay, that was it. So that's why they call it the twentieth. But so that that became kind of an annual thing. But then we kind of got kicked out of town, and uh, <laughs> <laughs> Stanley got a little tired of our our deal, and and so we moved down to Chalice, and Chalice was thrilled to have us the town down the road because there weren't didn't get quite the tourist action that Stanley does. So they actually built us a stage on the golf course, which has a natural amphitheater there. And uh, we've been there for the last 16 years, I think. So, yeah. Wow. So, and you guys have taken over now. Is that right? I mean, yeah. I mean, they've passed the torch to you to run the thing. 
Yeah, my mom and dad did it forever. I mean, every literally everything, the two of them. I mean, from booking the bands and security and porta potties, you name it. You know, I mean, they did everything and would kind of spend all year working on it. And um, you know, they're getting mom's in her seventies now, and dad's almost there. And they did. It's just got to be too much now that it's. I mean, it's three days now. You know, five six bands a day, and you know, three four thousand people a day, and so it's really grown. Uh, considerably since the you know when they first started and so yeah my brothers Gary and Mickey and Willie and I we uh, we all partnered up and and uh, have been running it for the last three years. <laughs> so uh, I, I don't think we can talk to Reckless Kelly without talking about some of the practical jokes. I would like to really start with uh, the aftermath. If somebody can give us a like a you know like a quick quick sort of. Uh, just a just a shorted, ver- truncated version of the aftermath, and is it still on YouTube? I think, yeah, you, you can still it? find it on YouTube. Yeah, yeah part but, one and two, I yeah, believe. Part one and two, <laughs> the aftermath. So Jay, you're you're the star of the aftermath. Yeah, it, it follows me to this day. I mean, all the time. It's like, you know, if I got as many compliments on my drumming as I do about how much people love this video, so. As you know, it was, what was it, 2006? Somewhere around there, playing at the Fillmore, we were opening up for you. And uh, we were excited about opening up for you and playing at the Fillmore. And I got a little carried away and winded up streaking the stage during the encore. (laughs) Um, Thank God there were no video phones at the time or anything like that. And uh, the internet was just kind of starting to pop or whatever. So I remember the next day, like, I was very unsure about the success or failure of, of what I did. I barely remembered it. And the guys were like, Ro- it didn't seem like Robert was very pleased. And I was like, well, what do you mean? You know, like, you know, the, the other guys, they, they said they were high-fiving me or whatever. And, and so the whole day was just this, this prank that went down of you being mad and wanting us off the tour. And our Brian Hill, our agent at the time, was leaving me messages saying, you know, I got a call from Robert. He is pissed. So... <laughs> They told me you wanted us off the tour. And so I was like, well, we're going to go to the venue, the Majestic, I think it was, and I'm going to apologize, and then we're going to pack up and we're going to go. So we do that, and then watch your bus pull up, and I'm just like sweating. I'm like, oh, my God. And then you asked to see everybody backstage and and, uh, everybody. And so I stand up, and I was like, guys, I'm so sorry. And we get backstage, and I remember sitting down on the couch. Well, the first thing you said is, Jay, can I get you a vodka? You need something to drink? (laughs) (laughs) And I was like, oh, my God, he's so mad. And then you sit down, and you start talking about, you know, like seeing Bob, you've seen Bob Dylan at a, or Tony Bennett at a restaurant, (laughs) eating breakfast. You've you've been on the stage with Willie Nelson and Waylon Jennings and whatever you were saying. And I was just like, I just remember thinking, like, I've made him so mad that he's, I think he's crazy right now at this point. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I guess I might as well say the punchline just because, you know, people can watch it. But uh, you said, and that, that stunt you pulled last night was one of the greatest things I've ever seen. <laughs> and the room just lit up. And of course, I felt a thousand pounds off my shoulders. But uh, it, it's a great memory in hindsight. But it's still, I watch it from time to time. I'm just like, ah, it's just so hard to watch. Because I really, I really struggled that day. It was definitely one of the best things I've ever been part of, I'll have to say. You came to me Not a moment too Death at my door and time on the run And destiny surrounds you And now that I've found you I'm never gonna let you go So uh, let's go on to uh, your thing with Blind Luck, I guess it was. And we can start with the mascot, maybe. Yeah, they stole our mascot. Which was? Lester. This little (laughs) troll. He was like the weirdest thing. Our buddy Rusty gave him to us. And we used to set him on the bass amp every night. And he was just, he's on the cover of uh, Live at Stubbs. 
and we did a gig with them somewhere and they stole Lester and they sent this ransom note like with the newspaper you know letters cut out and glued onto the paper and dressed him up in drag yeah I forget the uh, what were their demands they wanted they had some yeah, list of yeah. demands and uh, so I remember how we got Lester back is uh, they did we did another gig with them and Joseph left his Rickenbacker behind so we had his Rickenbacker <laughs> <laughs> And so he, uh, the next morning, he showed up at our house with Lester <laughs> above his head. I was like, can I have my guitar back? And we're like, sure. <laughs> he put Lester down, and I'll go get the guitar. But then it kind of escalated because uh, we wanted to get him back for that. So we put all their, uh, all their gear. We knew all the gear they had. And we put out ads in the Chronicle for, like, super cheap. Like, you know, <laughs> Fender Telecaster, $150. And, you know, Drum set. <laughs> Call you know, call between six and eight AM type of thing before I go to work. And so their wives were so chapped because they all had kids and you know, the phones ringing at six in the morning and we also did a had to put in that the lead singer was having a yard sale. And he was on the road, and so we put in. The, he had a yard sale. Please get there early for coffee and donuts inside. Don't knock. Come and on so, in. <laughs> <laughs> so his wife that was the end just, of that. Yeah, they that they, they, they kind of yeah the kibosh on it. The way they called so Uncle. Chapped. So let the rain sting my neck. Let the mighty Mississippi take this godforsaken town. Let the storm and all the fear come and carry me away. Take me to that place somewhere on high ground. We're going to take a quick break, and we'll continue our interview with Reckless Kelly when we return. At Americana Podcast, the 51st State, we would like to take a moment to recognize songs we feel embody the spirit of Americana music. Selected by our good friend and music connoisseur, Will Vote. this is Will's Pick. This Town is Killing Me, from Caitlin Smith's Starfire. The album Starfire showcases the songwriting and singing of Minnesota native Caitlin Smith. She has also contributed to the soundtrack of the hit show Nashville. On Starfire, she exhibits a real songwriting talent and sensibility. Several of her songs show off her powerful singing, which approaches a memorix moment. Will's pick from this record is This Town is Killing Me, a ballad that shows off her reflective side. We at Americana Podcast really enjoy this song as it gives a contemporary spin on a common Nashville lament. Robert O'Keen here. We're talking with Reckless Kelly. Uh, we're going to talk about some business. I have here, Jay, that uh, you were quoted as saying that artists should never go on stage without understanding their business. Uh, can you extrapolate on that? Well, and that's another one of those things where it's like a a lesson of experience, you know, as you go on and stuff. But um, it just you, you hear so many stories about artists getting with management and they're making decisions based on the uh, on behalf of the artist and next thing you know they put out an album they own the album and it's they're unable to see any of the information or the the money's being sent to somebody else and and things like that so just kind of i think knowing what the people you hire are doing for you and understanding how it works a little bit understanding contracts with the venues as you're getting old as you're coming up you're so eager you're so eager to get to the next thing that sometimes you just kind of rush through it and stuff and you miss some of these things where it's just like if we look back and corrected some things early on we could have had that much more you know financial success and, and things like that so i think just understanding like those big contracts every letter in there means something and you, you have to spend the time to understand what that is or else you're going to spend twice as much time getting out of what you signed 
Amen, brother. <laughs> so um, you've emphasized importance of physical packaging, in particular, and won a Grammy for the design of your record Long Night Moon, and nominated for uh, one with Sunset Motel in 2016. Yeah. Yes. And so in the world of digital downloads, why in the world would you push the importance of record packaging? Well, at the time, like we did Good Luck and True Love, um, which was also nominated. That was the first one we did with the Dodge Sisters. Actually, the second one. They did the uh, Somewhere in Time one. But the first one we did on uh, our new record label, No Big Deal, was new at the time. And uh, and back then, people were actually still buying physical copies. Not as many, but they still were. And we were trying to get people to buy the copy instead of stealing it. Because it was a little before like Spotify was really the big thing. It was more back in the... CD burning and Napster and that kind of stuff. So people were st starting to buy less, but they were actually buying them. And so by the time we got to Long Night Moon, which we're still sitting on probably about eight or nine thousand copies in Jazz's garage, but uh, <laughs> that's when it really started falling off. Like um, so, the next one we made, we were like, we're gonna do one more like really big, cool package thing. And the Dodge Girls are really great. Like you bring them an idea, and you know you have a handful of things you want to see on there and then they take those things and turn it into you know a bunch of ideas and they kind of run with it and they end up with these really cool ideas you just can't say no to even though they're really kind of expensive and you know extravagant but they we're talking about backstage design right yeah, yeah sean yeah. and sarah dodds yeah they, they, they do great work yeah they're, they're incredible incredible they're great, work so. yeah I, I, well, and for all the old school people out there, too, that really, I mean, I always love buying the CD oh, right. or the LP and looking Absolutely. at it and reading the liner notes and seeing pictures from the recording and seeing who wrote the songs and reading the lyrics to the songs. And then when you add on the fun art things that, you know, we've also always made the, the album covers kind of interactive. You know, the, the good luck and true love came with a, a dice in the, or that was Wicked Twisted Road came with a dice in the, the CD jewel case and the, the artwork folded out into a game so you could play this game. And and so we always tried to make it a little bit more interactive and, and fun. And for me, that was always kind of part of the process and part of the, the art that you're putting forward is it's not just the music, it's here's an explanation and kind of a visual thing to go with the music. Yeah, it's almost for us more than it is the fans, you know. Like yeah. it's it's part of the big project you're doing, like you said, and it's it's a piece of art at the end of the day. And it's sad that that's gone away, you know. Like you used to put on an album and you sit there, and while you're listening to it the first time, you read the liner notes and oh, I didn't know he played piano on this, and they recorded it here and there. But uh, all that information was on the the jacket, and now you don't you don't even I don't even, do people even make them anymore. I don't know. You know? <laughs> I mean, I did. I, I have made a, a record recently, but um, instead of putting any information, it has no information whatsoever. Just it just has the song titles. <laughs> nice. <laughs> <laughs> so I just kind of went with it. But I I mean I'm I'm totally with you. I I, I think it's actually cool if if everybody's doing one thing than doing something that no one's doing I always think is cool. What you feel is here right now Every moment conceived somehow from another We were born Under lucky stars We were born under lucky stars. And then we're at Sunset Motel, which we're kind of coming to the sunset of uh, our of, of our show here. It's Robert Earl Keen on Americana Podcast, the 51st State, talking with Reckless Kelly. Sunset Motel, your most recent record, came out in 2016. Some of the influences for that record? Man, um, I don't know. It's uh, That one It was right after Long Night Moon, which was kind of a concept album about you know, traveling. And so I was like, I felt like I was locked into that concept a little bit. So the next album, I was like, I don't want to have any like shackles as far as like theme or concept goes. That one, we, we did it at Arlen, and... Uh, we had a lot of our friends stop by. We we took our time with it. You know, we had a little, little extra time to just kind of 
play with it and uh, we didn't really do a lot of rehearsals for that one we just kind of went into the studio and and kind of came up with arrangements on the fly and uh and that was fun we had just a bunch of people stop by and, and jammed on the record and came in and played guitar or sang and ended up with a whole bunch of tracks that we didn't even put on the album that we might end up using somewhere down the road but just... okay so over <laughs> say the last uh, last 20 years how has your uh your process, your decision-making process changed in the world of making a record and that sort of thing. Is it just the same? or the, It's kind of different every time. I mean, uh, you know, we've had our own label for the last several records, so that makes a big difference when you're paying for everything and, and doing everything. And it's funny, you would think, like, we would just go in and, and do the cheapest thing we can and knock it out, but it's kind of been the opposite. Like We've spent more time in the studio, spent a little more money, and really just having that freedom to do exactly what we want and and go in there and make sure it's right. Um, that's been really nice, and not having the pressure of somebody else outside of your band telling you the way it should be or the way that you know they think it should be or it's got to fit into this format or you're spending too much time on this and so i it's it's probably to a fault that we spend a little bit more time and money but again it comes back to that's that's our baby you know every record we make is something that we want to be proud of and we don't want to you know at this point look back and not not be really proud of everything we're putting out uh if you and this goes out to everybody if you're on an airplane with a stranger and they ask you what kind of music do you play what do you say i always say americana first and then they go they look at you like what's that and then i say it's like country rock but not nashville country and then i say it's kind of more rock and roll with a fiddle you know so i have to say like three or four things before they get it and then they go so like rascal flats (laughs) and they go no and it's hard to find somebody that they've heard of that you can compare yourself to so i'd say like you know it's more like if tom petty or you know, Bruce Springsteen had a, a fiddle and, you know, played more country stuff, you know. Yeah. But, Jay? I usually say country rock just to make it easy and <laughs> fall not, back to not sleep. get into it. <laughs> yeah, that's a good... I should do that because I always feel like I have to explain it. Like, but it's not like this. It's kind of like that. Cody? Yeah. Yeah, say, I always say Americana. I mean, I, I think that word is important to to get out there and for people to recognize what that is and i don't mind explaining what that is i think it's very broad you know um but yeah i always say americana and then the same thing just kind of you'd kind of just explain from there on out uh uh so you embrace this uh, americana uh moniker um uh, how does that apply to the music that you play? I mean, is there aspects to your music that you feel like are like solidly like right down the middle of the plate with Americana? I think our stuff is uncannily always right in the middle. I mean, I remember back in the days when we would do record and take it to Nashville or take it to radio people and they'd always give us the same just like well you did it again it's too country for too country for rock and roll and too rock and roll for country <laughs> see you later I think Americana is so broad now like it seems like they've taken bluegrass and folk and country what used to be country and uh and even like indie rock, and they've put it all in. Yeah, they put it all into this one subcategory because there's it's kind of like the home for misfit toys, you know. Like nobody really has a place because you can't you can, rock and roll isn't rock and roll anymore. Country isn't country anymore. You know, bluegrass is still bluegrass, I guess. But um, but you know, there's no bluegrass stations or you know. So there's, they've got to have a home for all this stuff. I think that's the, where the, the term evolved, really. So yeah, in Americana, wrong, in, I'm, we're, we're talking about Americana music and, and how it's formed and how it's shaped over the years. So, uh, if uh, you could ch- change, take anything away, change anything, what, what would you change? Would you? Is there a certain element that you just don't care for, for instance? Within the Americana genre? Yeah. Uh, I don't know. It seems like it might be a little too broad because it seems like there's a lot of explaining to do mm-hmm. as far as, uh, you know, like I was saying, it just, it's just got all these other things that's just kind of put into this big pot, you know. But at the same time, it kind of gives us a, a home, you know, with like sure. the Americana chart and the Americana awards and, you right. know, it kind of 
I, what I really wish, if I had if I had to do it my way, there'd be like a subcategory, you know, what used to be called country rock, uh-huh. you know, which is right. what we set out to do, right. you know, stuff like the burritos and Graham and the Eagles and, you know, that kind of thing, our influences and the Steve Earls and Sunvolts. And- so currently, uh, with the three artists that you would consider Americana artists that, uh, along with yourself? Well, uh, Buddy Miller, of course. You know, he's kind of like the the king of Americana up there. Him and Emmy Lou and um, John Prine. Yeah, John Prine. Yeah, right. Yeah, um, absolutely. And it, uh, there's a lot of younger bands out there too. Uh, you know, we get to play all over and play with a bunch of new guys. And there's a band called Flatland Cavalry that's out doing really cool stuff now. It's kind of real, kind of an old school country thing, and um, but with a new new twist. They're all really young. Uh, Caitlin Butts is really great. Um, this band Mike and the Moon Pies, they're doing kind of 70s country with a lot of twin guitar stuff. And and I hear I hear it now more in, like like I said, Bruce Springsteen and Tom Petty, and th- those guys sound Americana to me. You know, I mean, that's... Right, it's, yeah. It's, I, they sound I, more I, country I, than yeah. country does to I me. agree, yeah. Mm-hmm. When at the, like the Americana Music Awards, it's like you can sit there and have this huge variety of entertainment all over the map, but you still find everybody is still satisfied and nourished from all the different artists and and you know i've noticed the last couple of years of going is is um the guys perform there that they don't need to show up they do it because they want to be there they're they enjoy the the genre and um i just think that's what's so cool about it is like it's not just you know it's like there's guys that don't have to get off their couch if they didn't want to and they show up and they perform at the americana music awards and and to be a part of that and uh i think that's really cool it's jay naz with a fresh perspective on americana <laughs> music here no kidding call him your lover he ain't even your best friend Left in the wings, I was waiting for the curtain to fall. How you gonna love him if you don't even like him at all? We have a lightning round. It just goes, it goes, just, you just right off the top of your head, and we'll just go ahead and jump in and start. Our lightning round starts with this City Market in Luling or Franklin Barbecue. I would have to say Franklin. I'm going to go City Market. They're the brothers. Franklin. 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 Okay, and there's Jay. Franklin wins. Telecaster or Stratocaster? (laughs) Telecaster. All day long. Who cares? (laughs) 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 Jay the drummer. There you go. Jesse James or Ned Kelly? Oh, I got to go with Ned Kelly. (laughs) (laughs) That was a throwaway. Uh, Linda Ronstadt or Dolly Parton? Linda. Yeah, Linda. I don't know. I, w- I would go Dolly. I'm going to say Dolly, too. Yeah. Um, Louis L'Amour or Larry McMurtry? I got to say Louis L'Amour. I'm going to say McMurtry. I love his stuff. Yeah. I'll go McMurtry. Yeah, there you go. Red Sox or Yankees? <laughs> Yankees. <laughs> Sox. World champs. No big deal. <laughs> more rings. <laughs> little respect for the world champs, please. <laughs> uh, Idaho State song or Texas State song? Ah, man, I think Texas has got us on that. Our Idaho State song is... How does that go? And here we have Idaho. (laughs) And that's all I know of it, because the rest of it just gets worse. (laughs) Uh, Bull Durham or The Sandlot? Bull Bull Durham. Durham. Yeah, I go Bull Durham. Sun Vault or Uncle Tupelo? Sun Sun Vault, yeah. Catering or buyout? Buy out. Buy out. <laughs> <laughs> Neat and greet or sharp stick in the eye? Sharp stick in the eye. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Which eye? <laughs> uh, we're looking at uh, one last little thing. that Besides broadening our uh, definition of Americana music, here at the Americana Podcast, we're looking for a better name. For the B3, we think it's a great instrument and deserves a more colorful name. We've had one artist tell us a joke about the B3. One band renamed it the Whirly Machine. We're still looking for a name. That's a good question. (laughs) Our grandpa was the B3 
slash piano player at a casino for 25 years. I should probably have an answer for that. Call it the Musty. The musty that was Grandpa's name. <laughs> the Musty. We like that. Huh? I would call it the Mistake Eraser. <laughs> <laughs> Just turn up the V3 a little bit and everything goes away. The glue that binds us together. <laughs> oh, we like this. We like this. This is so good. We want to thank our guest, Reckless Kelly. William Cody Braun, drummer Jay Naz. Special thanks goes to Floors Country Store, Mark McKinney, and Joel Schaff. Our theme music is original music by Kim Warner. Our producer engineer is Clara Rose. And I'm your host, Robert Earl Keen. Until next time, keep the rubber on the road and the blood inside. At this time, we would like to thank our host, Robert Earl Keane, Mark McKinney, and Joel Shep of Flores Country Store, and our guests, Willie and Cody Braun and Jay Naz of Reckless Kelly. Americana Podcast is brought to you by Keane Productions, edited and produced by Clara Rose, mastered by Pat Mansky, with original music by Kim Warner. Until next time, let the music play. <laughs>